Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Okay, 1 John chapter 5, and Lord willing, we're going to get to the end of the chapter today. It's been so good walking through the book of 1 John. I've enjoyed it, and I think we're really going to pray that we would get a lot out of what we talk about today in these last few verses. Let me start with this, the Golden Gate Bridge. It's an engineering marvel. It certainly was when it was completed in 1937. It was, at the time, the world's longest suspension bridge. And of course, it, many of you have probably heard different things about it. These facts are well known, but one of the unique things about the building there was that they took extra safety measures for the time period and uh, at one point finally installed a safety net underneath for their workers. Even though, you know, the Great Depression, everybody wanted a job, but um, they were willing to work whether they fell to their death or not, almost. But uh, the safety net ended up saving the lives of 19 men. And those 19 people who fell, thought they were going to die, but landed in that net, called themselves the Halfway to Hell Club. <laughs> uh, but, but one surprising result of the safety net was that it improved productivity by 25%. They got more work done. Um, turns out you're a better worker when you're not afraid of dying <laughs> every five minutes. And this is how God wants the Christian to think and to live, never fearing that they could die and go to hell. That if he sins, then... His salvation could just get taken away from him. God wants people to know that they know that they are saved. The safety net, that safety net actually makes us more productive for the kingdom of God. Because truly all Christians, and we, I, I bet everybody in here would agree with me, we all feel like we're in, we, we are in the halfway to hell club. We were on our way to hell. But Jesus saved us. He saved us. Now we're going to talk this morning about being a 100% confident that we're saved. Jesus doesn't want us to doubt our salvation. He wants us to shout about our salvation. He wants us to know that we know. We're going to talk about eternal security. It's sad, but many good, faithful Christians still sometimes doubt that they're saved. And it breaks my heart, and I would imagine it probably breaks the heart of God far more than it does me. I mean, he died, Jesus died to save us, and still so many are struggling. If they sin, they feel bad, they feel like, man, I, I don't even know if I'm saved. That guilt or whatever it is creeps up inside. And so many come to church week in and week out. You'd be surprised probably how many people have that doubt. Actually, I have to share this. What happened this week reminds me of how important really this message is that Jesus gave to us. For some reason, there's a man in the community who has taken it upon himself to convert me 
away from this doctrine of eternal security, or once saved, always saved. And I've uh, had a couple interactions with him, the first one being on the telephone, and man, he, he ripped me up one and, and tore me down the other. He just, he said, this is, you know, you're preaching heresy, this is wrong. And uh, the next time he came in, we talked about different things. He was much milder, something had happened, I think, in his heart. And, uh, and he was a little more humble. And then this, just this past week, I have all my books open, I'm studying about eternal security, and he comes walking in my office. And he gives me a paper that says the rebuttal against once saved, always saved. I've only had a few interactions in these last couple of years, but he comes on this particular week. And I told him, man, you, you, you're probably shocked, but you know what I'm studying right now? And, um, and I even showed him a book, and I, had, I brought it with you. I had this book open. It's called Know That You Know. In fact, we're going to start carrying this in our book nook out in the lobby. But I showed him that, and I said, man, I, I'm so... So we had a discussion about eternal security for just a minute. But after a few minutes, we were going back and forth about different things. Very, it was kind. It was a kind conversation. His attitude has changed. And after a few minutes, though, my heart started to get burdened for him as a person. I just started to... My heart started to break, and I was thinking... You must live in an exhausting religious world, a burden on you that if I don't do this and this and this, God might take me to hell or send me to hell. And I said, brother, if God says we can know something, then I want to know what he says that we can know. And in 1 John 5, 13, it says we can know that we have eternal life. And he admitted before he walked out, you know, I'm getting closer. (laughs) So let's look at this famous verse in the Bible that says we can know that we are saved. The 90-year-old pastor John, the apostle, didn't want anyone to go away from his letter without knowing that they know. And so these final verses of John really are about, have the theme of confidence here and knowing. Let's look at the first Uh, of your outline there, confidence in eternal life in Christ. Confidence of eternal life in Christ. That's our first blank. Verse 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that you have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. God says, these things, these things have I written unto you that believe. These things. The gospel of John was written for unbelievers to convince them to believe in Jesus. But the epistle of John, the one we're reading, the first John here, was written for believers to give them assurance of their salvation. The first, the Gospel of John is for evangelism. The Epistle of John is for encouragement. And it's two, the two greatest gifts you can give to somebody. Give them the gift of the Gospel. Show them how to be saved. The second greatest gift is give them the assurance of their salvation. Because there's so much in that. What are some of the things that John has written? These things have I written to give us confidence that we may know. Well, there's few things just about Jesus himself that we've looked at throughout these last few weeks. That Jesus cleanses sinners, that Jesus is righteous, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus destroys the works of the devil, 
that Jesus was dwelling in them, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, that Jesus came by water and blood, that Jesus gives eternal life, that Jesus is the true God. All those things are things that John has written to them. So all these incredible doctrinal truths are written so that we would know Jesus and so that we would know then that we have eternal life. Because once you understand Jesus, who he is, why he came, what he did, then the fog starts to clear and you understand salvation. You have to know Jesus. And, he's, and that Jesus has come, died on the cross, rose again, and what that means. And it means that he has taken away all of my sins. He has taken away all of my sins, not just some of them. And you begin to see that this salvation is eternal. He gives eternal life. That's what he says here in this verse. If you could lose eternal life, then it was never eternal to begin with. Remember the context of what John is doing here with the prevalence of the Gnostics. They're coming in, confusing people about salvation, about Jesus. And, uh, and many people are kind of listening to them, and some are even dropping out of the church. And John needed to help people get their heads screwed on straight. The Gnostics had muddied the waters on salvation. So, so John speaks truth here, and this is a pastor's job sometime. Strip away some of that stuff, all this this stuff, the latest trends out there, and bring us back to the simplicity of what Jesus has said about salvation. There was a little boy who wanted to be baptized. And the pastor, this old church, wanted to make sure that this little boy understood everything. So he, he brought him in and said, Son, why don't you explain salvation to me? And the little boy said, Pastor, I did my part and Jesus did his part. Well, the pastor, he said he wasn't sure what that meant in his little brain, and so he didn't want him to think that it's a works salvation. You do your thing, and God does his thing. So he, he said, uh, I, I need to know what you mean. Can you tell me more about that? And the little boy said, Pastor, well, I did all the sinning, and Jesus did all the saving. And you know, sometimes we overanalyze salvation. It's and make it much more difficult than it needs to be. This kid could teach us something. This is the truth. I did all the sinning, and Jesus did all the saving. And John wrote this letter to help people understand that. It's very simple. You can know that you have eternal life. You have it. Because you did the sinning, but Jesus did the saving. You have it. Notice it says you have. You have currently eternal life. It's yours right now. But we can only know that if our salvation rests in Jesus and not our own performance. If it depends on me, then on a good day, I'm saved. And on a bad day, well, I don't really know if I'm saved or not. But if it depends on Jesus, what he has done for me, then I can know. I can know it's, it's not about emotional it, emotions. It's not if I get a good emotional feeling while I'm, while I'm in church. Man, can you imagine if our salvation was based on how we feel? Man, you know, if uh, somebody has said, it's, if, if you get a shiver in your liver, you're feeling good, you know, and everything's great. But no shiver, then I'm not saved. We don't want that. 
Jesus did all the work. All we have to do is believe. That's what this verse says. To those who believe, you have eternal life. We're just receiving a gift. There's no work in that. But if a person thinks somehow that they had a part in salvation, well, then naturally they would think they could lose it. If somehow you think your good works can keep it going, then yes, I could see why you might think you could lose it. But that's not what it's based on. We're just receiving a gift. So, have you believed? Have you trusted? Have you 100% put all of your faith in Jesus to save you from your sins and give you eternal life? Then based on the promises of God, you have eternal life. And that's what we're resting on, the promises of God. As the great missionary said, uh, he wrote a letter, Hudson Taylor, to his wife. And he said, honey, we have 25 cents and all the promises of God. <laughs> if you have all the promises of God, you have everything. And his promise is if you have believed, then you are saved and you have currently eternal life. Now, throughout the book of 1 John, we've seen several other indicators of salvation. John gave us those. And we've talked about them. I just want to really quick give you four questions based on those things that he, he's given. Here's the thing to think about in your mind. These are indicators that we are saved. Number one, do I love God's people? If I love God's people, then that's a good indicator that you have Jesus living inside of you. Am I comfortable with sin? If you're comfortable with sin, then that's an indicator that you may not have Jesus living inside of you. A believer can't be comfortable in sin. Number three, do I desire the Bible? Do I desire the word of God? Do I desire to follow the Bible? Then that's also a sign that Jesus is living inside of you. Then number four, do I pass the test of time? There's an interesting thing. As time goes on, uh, if if it's a true saving faith, there would just be something inside of you that just continues and continues. And that first John brings that out. Those are all good indicators that Jesus is alive and well. Now, once a Christian is confident in his salvation, how Jesus wants him to live, then this leads to confidence in other spiritual matters, such as prayer. Look what John says next. We're going to talk about confidence of answered prayer in the will of God. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. The word K-N-O-W, if you were to circle it every single time in 1 John, you'd find that it's in there 40 times. It's a, there's a, such a confidence and a knowing that John wants us to have in our faith. He doesn't want, he doesn't want uh, iffy Christians walking around. Two things we see here in these verses, the basis of prayer and the principle of prayer. The basis of prayer is the simple fact that God listens to our prayers. William Barclay gave some good insight on this word confidence here. He wants us to have confidence. It's the Greek parisia, and originally that parisia meant freedom of speech. The same kind of freedom of speech we're talking about when we talk about freedom of speech in this nation, which seems to be slowly going out of uh, vogue here. But later, that Parisia came to denote any kind of confidence. So we could say here, with God, we have freedom of speech. (laughs) He's always listening. We never have to force our way into his presence. 
He's waiting for us to come. You have freedom to speak before God. Speak. Come boldly to the throne of grace. This morning, as I was in my dad's office talking about the morning stuff, all of a sudden, uh, my little niece, uh, Tris, you know, she came running in and, hi, Papa, and she, she busted right in and opened his drawer up and grabbed the little mint out. And I mean, nobody told her what to do. She just as bold as could be, did what she knew she could do. And that kind of confidence, that's what we're talking about. You can walk right in to God. God, I need to talk to you. And he welcomes that. He's your father. Confidently talk to him anywhere, everywhere. James chapter four and verse two, you know it. He said, we have not because we ask not. He hears us. So that's the basis of prayer. We know that God hears us. Come to him. But what's the principle in this passage? Of, and this is the principle of prayer. That to be answered, it must be in accordance with the will of God. For God to answer it, he'll answer any request that's according to his will. Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Not thy will be changed. This is... This is what prayer is all about. We tend to think that prayer is going in, talking to God, and twisting God's arm to get him to do what we want him to do. That's not really what prayer is all about. That's not what biblical prayer is. True prayer is asking God for what he wants. Prayer is talking to God and then listening to him. As George Mueller said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Laying hold of his willingness It's thinking God's thoughts after him. Lord, what is your will? What is your will? Adrian Rogers said, prayer, listen, is the Holy Spirit finding a desire in the heart of the Father, putting that desire in our hearts to return it in the form of a request to him. I love that. I love that. I've noticed the more that we're in tune with Christ, the more that that we follow him, the more that... Uh, our hearts are in tune with his heart. The, the confidence begins to build in our prayers because our will is now in alignment with his will. And when we ask for things, we get what we ask for because our will is in line with his. I think that's the meaning of Jesus' words in John fifteen seven. If ye, Jesus said this, if ye abide in me, it's an amazing promise. One of my favorite verses. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, Jesus either said that or he didn't say that. That's either a promise or it's not a promise. And what a way to live. What a way to live. Because my will is in alignment with his, I can ask and it will be done. I'm listening to God, I'm abiding in him, I'm letting his words abide in me, and I pray back his own words and ask and it will be done. No other religion can offer this kind of confidence in prayer. Have you seen those folks, those Buddhist folks that walk into some of those Buddhist temples and there's one particular I remember seeing on a travel show one time in uh, it's a Buddha laying on his side like this. He's a golden Buddha, kind of big giant one. And he's just chilling in there, you know. And, and they go in there and they pray or do whatever they do. But listen, a golden Buddha is not going to give you that kind of confidence in prayer. There's no way you could have that kind of confidence in prayer. 
And those folks who in Rome uh, climb up the stairs on their knees, you know, and their knees are all bloody by the time they get to the top to, to uh, pray to the Virgin Mary, that's not going to bring them more confidence in their prayer to get their prayers answered. It's not. Jesus is so different. Look what he says again in verse 14 and 15 as I conclude this portion. Listen. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we desired of him. What a promise. What a promise to you and me. What confidence that puts in us to pray about everything. Pray about everything. And now John gives a specific example of praying in these next verses. This is intercessory prayer, meaning we're praying for someone else. So now these verses are some of the hardest in the Bible to interpret. You ready for this? Verse 16, And if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not, not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Got it? All clear? We can move on. All right. Let's start with the hardest question, okay? What is the sin, this sin unto death? Well, looking, after looking again at all the arguments, there's different things people say. Some say, well, it's murder. That's the sin unto death. Uh, some say it's apostasy. You never, were one, you never were saved. You just make a profession and then you uh, leave. But after looking at the different arguments, my belief is that it is referring to a Christian, because we're talking about a brother here sinning a sin, sinning a sin unto death. That is a Christian who grieves God so much that God will take away his physical life. He will remove him from this earth. Not from heaven, but he will remove him from this earth. He will cut his physical life short. This view is held by Bible teachers such as John MacArthur, John R. Rice, and others. 1 Corinthians 11.30 is an example of this. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and sleep. He was talking about the Lord's Supper and taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. It led to people dying prematurely. There's an example of Moses in the Bible. You can look it up. Ananias and Sapphira are another example of this. There have been times when a believer's sin will lead to a premature death. And the idea, I think, in verse 16 and 17 then, what it's saying is that Christians have a right to pray for a sinning Christian to be restored to fellowship. Yes, you, if there is somebody who is sinning and you know it, they're a believer and they're walking away from God, pray, pray for them. And we have the right to even pray that they would be spared from sickness that comes because of sin. But if God's will is to take that Christian home because of his sin, then we can't be confident. We can't be confident that our sins, or excuse me, that our prayers will make a difference that our prayers are going to stop what God's going to do. And I think that's the intent of this verse. A sin unto death itself may just be a final, the final sin in a long series of sins. God knows this person will never repent. He knows this. And this person is just going to keep on corrupting God's church and 
keep on corrupting Christ's good name. And so God in his wisdom, and he cannot allow this person to remain here and do the damage that he's doing, and so God's going to take him home. I, there's, be careful. Be very careful, though. We don't build a Bible doctrine on one vague verse. We don't believe that every Christian who dies prematurely has sinned a sin unto death. Never think that. In fact, we're never really going to know until heaven why God took certain people at certain times and really what is a premature death. Anyway, we don't know. We don't know what's premature and what's not. But be sure in this verse, and by the way, some say, well, the sin unto death is homosexuality or something like that. You might hear that. It's not one specific sin. It's a sin that's the final sin that God says, I'm done, I'm done. But be sure to see the positive side of this verse. We focus so much on the sin unto death part, but I want to see the positive side of this verse, and that is that we can and we should pray for a brother who is sinning, a sin that's not unto death. You may have family, you may have friends in this category, People you're praying for, that God would restore them and bring them back. The encouragement is here, keep praying. Do not give up. You know, I, I prayed for a person for 15 years who walked away from the faith. And I remember, even as a young man, this person was so, I was so burdened about them. And so for 15 years, and it wasn't until that time that this person came back with a new humble spirit and a joy in the faith I was so amazed, so impressed by what God had done. And all those prayers, I just realized, God, you were listening, you were hearing. And I always think of that great story that George Mueller has in his life. Somebody wrote about after he passed away, but George Mueller prayed for a friend of his to come to Christ for years and years and years. In fact, he prayed all the way until the end, and then you know that friend got saved at George Mueller's funeral. Don't stop praying now. Don't stop praying now. now. There's something else John wants us to be confident in here. Number three, confidence in victory over sin. Verse 18. We know, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. And that wicked one toucheth him not. Now this isn't saying that Christians don't sin. 1 John 1.10, remember, is very clear on that. He, uh, don't say that you have no sin. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. <laughs> so he's not, he's not saying that those who are saved don't sin. So what does it mean, whosoever is born of God sinneth not? The grammar in the original language makes it plain that John is speaking of a settled, continued, or continued lifestyle of sin. As John Stott says, the present tense here in the Greek verb implied habit, continuity, unbroken sequence. In other words, we're talking about the lifestyle or general character of a person. So, what we could say is, whosoever is born of God is not characterized by sin. They're not living a life of habitual sin. So the question here is, what are you characterized by? Maybe a better question is, are you comfortable in your sin? As we talked about earlier, a person who's born of God cannot be comfortable in sin. In fact, the closer you get to the Lord, the more miserable you are when you sin. 
It's just uglier, and you hate it. And that hatred of sin and almost hatred of yourself for going down that road or thinking those things or whatever is just bothers you more than it ever has before. And that is a good sign. If your conscience no longer bothers you, something's wrong. You need to rush into the presence of God. There are two things in this verse about a person who's born of God and has God's nature living in them. One is that they guard their life against sin. He that is begotten of God keepeth himself. They guard their life from sin. And then number two, Satan can't eternally touch him. And that wicked one toucheth him not. Once you're born again, you are guaranteed the victory over the penalty, the power, and eventually someday even the presence of sin. We're going to be in heaven one day. This means you still sin here, but you are not a slave to sin. You don't have to do what the devil says. We don't have to do what the devil says. You don't have to sin. Someone has said this, the heathen is a man who has been defeated by sin and has accepted the fact of defeat. The Christian is the man who may sin, but never accepts the fact of defeat. (laughs) So this verse tells us we're victorious through Christ over sin. A true believer will do their part to guard against evil, and the devil can't eternally touch you. Then John gives some of the most amazing and powerful statements you'll ever read. All about, number four, confidence in belonging to God. Look at verses 19 and 20, confidence in belonging to God. And we know, look at all these no's here, all these confidence. I mean, man, John wants us walking out of here feeling confident. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, in case you missed it, these are massive far-reaching life statements about the world, about God, and about truth. We are of God. The whole world is in wickedness. The Son of God has come. He has given us understanding. We know Him that is true. We are in Him that is true. Jesus is the true God. And eternal life. These are massive, massive doctrinal statements. And it seems like everyone these days talks about truth and fact checking and all that. But when it comes to the biggest questions of life, man has no clue what's going on. They really don't. At best, the man on the street is just guessing at the biggest questions of life Who am I? Why do I exist? Where did I come from? What is life? Where are we headed? What is truth? What is truth? There's a a documentary that was made in 2010 called The Nature of Existence. And one of the segments in there was about truth. So they asked people on the streets, different people, what is, can you define the word truth? Here's a few of the answers. A Hindu cleric said, by worshiping God, you can find truth. 
A Tao cleric said, anything that runs counter to Tao will not be truth. Bobby Gaylor, a musician, said, what peop- truth is what people don't want to hear. Alan Siegel, a professor of religion at Columbia University, said, when somebody claims to know the truth and claims to be able to tell it to you, the first thing you should do is check to see if you still have your watch because that's the prelude to getting it taken. (laughs) Julia Sweeney, author of Letting Go of God, she said this, in science, you don't use the words, or you don't use words like truth. You say closer to truth. Irvin Kirshner, director of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes, Strikes Back, he said, only art comes close to trying the answer of truth. Some other man said the opposite of faith is a tendency to ask questions. And then a 12-year-old child said, I think truth is what we're all searching for, isn't it? Even though sometimes it's more fun to search for it than actually find it. That was probably the best one out of all of them, to be honest with you. Man cannot automatically know truth just by being born and having a brain. Man cannot automatically know truth by looking within himself. Truth must come from outside. It must come from a transcendent external source. God, in Christ, gives us clear and coherent answers to the biggest questions of life. God answers every single one of those questions we talked about. John lays out many of the answers right here in these verses. As someone has said about verse 20 here, The time of guessing is gone, and the time of knowing has come. (laughs) It's all about Jesus and what confidence this gives to you and me because Jesus answers the fundamental questions of life. This is the true God. Jesus is the true God and eternal life, this verse says. This is the most, John Stott said, this is the most unequivocal statement of the deity of Jesus Christ in the entire New Testament. Jesus is God. He has come into this wicked world, given us understanding, and given us eternal life through him. This whole thing is about Jesus. This whole thing is about him coming to save us, and that is the answer to life's questions. And look at what confidence this gives us then. We know that we know that we know. And lastly, we have number five, the confidence against error, verse 21. Look at this simple little verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. (laughs) Amen. This seems like an abrupt ending. But the more you meditate on it, the more powerful it becomes. John said, little children. Remember, that's his beloved, grandfatherly, pastorly way of speaking to the people in his church. Little children. There's something that could bring your life and God's work into shambles. There's something that could bring everything around you to a halt. There's something that could ruin your home. There's something that could ruin this church. There's something that could ruin you. And that is idolatry. Keep yourselves from idols. Now, idolatry is anything or anyone that takes the place of God in my heart and mind. We could apply this to money. We could apply this to careers. We could apply it to relationships. We could apply it to safety. We could apply it to prestige. We could apply it to substances. But also remember 
the location of this letter. It's Ephesus. This is the church in Ephesus primarily. The wicked and filthy temple of Diana was there in Ephesus. The perversion of this city was well known. Wicked, wicked place. There were opportunities for sin at every turn. And John says, everybody, keep yourselves from all these worldly things around you that are trying to become your God. Idolatry is a powerful tool of the devil. It still is today. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. We start giving a piece of our heart to something or someone, and pretty soon that person or that thing can become an idol. I've told young people many times when I've preached and taught them that there was a big day in my life as a junior hire when my dad came to me and confronted me about two things that he saw that were the most important things in my life at that age. He says, son, I feel like God's over here and there's two things that you really seem to love. And he said, pizza and basketball. (laughs) I still remember that. He confronted me. And those were my idols. Those had become idols. Those had become gods. And throughout the years, there are always new things coming in, screaming for my flesh's attention. New forms of pizza and basketball. The world is so alluring to you and to me. It is. And our hearts can be drawn away quickly. Everybody has their pizza and basketball. Don't say that you don't. Which idol is the devil trying to get you to go after? Those idols, those idols take people down all of the time. It did back then, and it, it'll take you down quicker than anything else. So keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. What an absolutely perfect way to end the letter. It's like a parent saying, you know, do right. As you're walking out the door, just do right. Make wise choices. <laughs> John says, keep yourself from idols. Let that be the last thing we hear. Father, oh Lord. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, Thank you for joining us.